Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 6, Spain Hears a Knock at the Door. Today will mark an important point in the podcast. European powers will begin making contact with regions of the Pacific Northwest, which will greatly upset the balance of power in the region. In our last episode, we established a Russian presence in the Aleutian Island chain, as well as in Alaska. Spain was, for a while, content with its holdings in Mexico and South America, and had consolidated territory that comprised future states of Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California. With Russians encroaching from the north, Spanish territory was now surrounded on all sides, and they needed to become more aggressive in their claims north of California. By all rights, Spain should have had some of the strongest claims to the Pacific Northwest out of any other European power. In this age, the Pacific Coast explorers were all Spanish. However, Spain neglected to publish any detailed accounts of their voyages, which significantly weakened their chance of claiming new territory. I'd like to break this down into two separate explanations of why it matters and why Spain did that, or rather, didn't do it. First, Exploring was all well and good for European countries to claim new territory, but it was not as simple as going somewhere first and claiming it for the kingdom they represented. Turning an exploration into a basis for claiming land was threefold. Firstly, there was the physical claim. The voyagers would engage in much pomp and circumstance with a speech and place a physical marker. Physical claims could also be the collection of plant and animal specimens. Second, Journals and logbooks needed to be kept by captains and officers as a record of what happened and where they went, and lastly, illustrations. Maps, charts, even drawings of what was seen. Later voyages often had an artist on board, as photography was not invented yet, so drawing was the next best thing. Early Spanish voyages to the Pacific Northwest did all of these things, but they never published their findings. Without publication, other claimants to the Pacific Northwest, Russia, Britain, and the burgeoning United States, had no reason to accept or acknowledge Spain's claims. Before you write off Spain's actions as unwise, I'd like to explain why they never published a record. When we look at history, sometimes it seems like everything happened in such a deterministic fashion. In reality, No one could have predicted how neglecting publication would have drastic consequences for the future. At the time, information was power, and Spain saw it as unwise to spread to the world tools for navigating an area that they wanted to keep a secret. That way, they could play it close to their chest. The influences of several wars also caused Spain to keep its information privy. The Seven Years' War, the American War for Independence, and the French Revolution— each embroiled Spain into conflict. Spain figured, why share valuable intelligence with someone who could be my enemy the next day? All that to say, Spain's lack of publication leaves us with a glaring lack of sources regarding Spain's voyages to the Pacific Northwest. So we have a frustratingly unfinished story. Let us go through what we do know, though. In the mid to late 1700s, European colonialism had changed. The three G's of God, gold, and glory were no longer the prime motivators of New World exploration and colonization. The three G's had given way to the three C's, curiosity, conquest, and commerce. 
European countries who were colonizing North America had integrated Enlightenment thinking into the collective consciousness. A new curiosity had taken shape. New ideas about the nature of life and government had compelled the minds of many elite people. As I said, exploration did more to procure foreign plants and animals, and artists were encouraged to draw and represent the cultures and traditions of indigenous peoples. Spain was at a crossroads of imperial conquest. Leadership realized that Russian encroachment from the north would creep toward their California holdings. Spain was also leery of the British Empire in North America. With the conclusion of the Seven Years' War in 1763, Britain had kicked the French off the continent and enjoyed a powerful position on the eastern seaboard and in Canada. Spain joined the French side of the Seven Years' War when it seemed the French odds of winning were tenuous at best. Being in this tough position, Spain saw it best to lay a more powerful claim to the land north of California. Enter Juan José Pérez Hernández, more commonly referred to simply as Juan Pérez. We know very little about Pérez's early life except for that he was born in 1725 in Palma de Mallorca, islands just off the coast of Spain. Pérez served as a pilot throughout the Spanish Empire, and he would be the first European to see the Pacific Northwest. Perez was ordered to sail to 60 degrees north latitude, and as always with voyages of this time, locate the Northwest Passage. There were a handful of stories claiming that explorers had indeed been to the Northwest Passage and knew its exact location. Perez was scouting out the claimed location from these stories. Along the way, Perez was obliged to explore the coast, make contact with friendly native peoples, and scout out strategic landmarks as well as take possession of lands he deemed valuable. Perez left from San Blas, Mexico, aboard his frigate named Santiago, on January 24, 1774. Sailing north, he stopped in San Diego for a few weeks to make repairs to his ship, and then continued to Monterey, California, where he waited for a few more weeks for the proper wind conditions. Perez left for his expedition proper on June 17, 1774. Unfortunately, we do not know much of what happened between Perez leaving Monterey and returning to Monterey the following year. I will give you the little we do know, though. The Santiago reached what is now the Queen Charlotte Islands, north of Vancouver Island. While there, the Native American people rowed their canoes out to the frigate and began circling it, sprinkling flower petals onto the water. This tradition was a common sign of peace and welcome amongst Pacific Coast Native Americans. For some reason, the Santiago did not attempt to make landfall at the Queen Charlotte Islands, even though fresh water and supplies were dwindling. It is unclear why Perez neglected to take his frigate ashore. If I had to guess, Perez likely was facing conditions that made putting to shore too risky. Remember, sailing was difficult to do in the 1700s. If the wind wasn't blowing the way you wanted to go, or there were equipment issues, putting ashore in uncharted waters was a dicey proposition. In any case, Perez turned south. He next encountered Vancouver Island at Estevan Point near Nootka Sound. Due to the winds, Perez could not put ashore and therefore was unable to take formal possession of the land. When Spanish forces took possession of a new land, it was an intentional and purposeful act with many key points. I'd like to give you an idea of what this elaborate circumstance would look like. First, 
The possession ceremony would more often than not be carried out in front of the indigenous people that the Spanish had traded with or at least made friendly contact. It would start out with a long speech that essentially stated that by the authority of the Spanish crown, the Pope, the Catholic Church, and by the right of God, Spain was now the owner of this territory. The speech was usually over a thousand words long. Next, the Spanish would fashion together a cross, a representation of their Catholic faith, and their right to the land dictated by the Pope in the Treaty of Tordesillas. The Spanish would then conduct military drill and march, often firing off their guns and cannons. Spain would then erect their cross and fix a plaque to it, which usually contained the date and the name of the current Spanish king. With all this complete, Spain would have laid a claim to the territory. A few things about this ceremony that may stand out to you. Firstly, no. The indigenous people had no idea what the Spanish were saying in their speech or what the meaning of the ceremony was. They would likely watch on in a mixture of confusion and curiosity at the unknown words and look on as the Spanish wandered around slashing trees with swords, flipping and tossing rocks, and disturbing the land in other ways. All parts of the act of possession. Sometimes natives would take it as a sign to showcase their own ceremonies to the strangers. All in all, the people they came across had no idea what was really taking place. It is important to remember that indigenous people were not a concern for the Spanish Empire when it came to claiming new lands. As far as Spain was concerned, the land was available. Getting back to Perez, the navigator was unable to put to shore and so he never took possession of any lands that he visited. While at Nuka Sound, he did trade with the people there. Evidence of this trade would be witnessed later by Captain Cook when he visited the same spot. The people of Nuka Sound were in possession of silver spoons from the Spanish voyage. A few silver spoons hardly made significant grounds for a claim to the region though. After another short stop, the Santiago pressed southward. By the time they had returned to Monterey, two-thirds of the Santiago's crew were incapacitated by scurvy. Perez returned to Monterey to find that another expedition north had already been planned and was making ready to leave. This two-ship expedition would be led by Don Bruno Hesita. Like Perez, there is not a ton to say about Hesita. He was born in Spain, March 1, 1743, making him 32 years old when he led the expedition to the Pacific Northwest. Hesita was a sailor and later in life served in the Spanish Navy until the day he died at the rank of Lieutenant General. Hesita would take control of the Santiago, and Perez would serve as Hesita's pilot for the expedition. The second ship was named Sonora. It was a much smaller vessel called a schooner. It had a crew of about 16, and was at first under the command of Juan de Ayala. Ayala is hardly worth mentioning, and I will tell you why soon. Second in command of the Sonora, was Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Cuadra, better known simply as Cuadra. Cuadra was born May 22, 1744, in Lima, Peru. He came from noble parentage and grew up in Peru. He was educated at a secular Jesuit college, but entered the Naval Academy in Cadiz, Spain at the age of 19. He became an officer at the age of 23, four years later. The 1775 expedition is the first significant event in Quadra's career. He was 31 years old. From what I have learned about the guy, he was steady, 
hardworking, and genuinely cared for the men under his command. I'd like to take a second to establish the source material for this episode. What we know about the second expedition comes from a journal written by Francisco Antonio Morel, Sonora's 25-year-old pilot. Morel's journey is the only surviving record of this expedition, which is why most of what we know is what was happening aboard Quadra's vessel. As I said, Spain neglected to publish records of these voyages, and Morel's journey was found in London and published. March 16, 1775, the Spanish expedition departed. Less than a few days in, Ayala, Sonora's captain, apparently lost his mind. It is unclear what that entailed, but he was no longer mentally fit to lead and was returned to San Blas. Quadra was henceforth in command of the schooner, but Ayala's departure represented what would be a difficult start for the voyage. Firstly, the schooner's foremast was damaged and it had to be towed by the Santiago. Quadra was able to make some repairs to the vessel and seemed to keep it in workable conditions. On May 11th, Isita called a junta, which is a meeting of a military council, to decide if the expedition should stop for weeks in Monterey to make repairs or continue onward. Everyone elected to press on, leaving the last place that could make ship repairs behind them. The Sonora consistently struggled to keep up with the Santiago, but managed to maintain contact with them for the time being. The expedition spotted its first promising landing site near modern-day Eureka, California. They anchored in the harbor and were greeted by natives of the region with flowers on their heads and unstrung bows, a gesture of peace. This was quite possibly the Wyote people that greeted the Spanish. The Wyote were very accommodating. They wanted to trade furs and skins with the Spanish as well as show them their homes. They told stories around fires and showed the Spanish all they had to offer. Morel's journal contained genuine curiosity and appreciation for the Wyote people. He seemed intent on learning as much as he possibly could and wrote it all down. Isita had forbid any of the men under his command from engaging in any sexual activities with any native people encountered. Two men broke this order, and Hizita would have them flogged. The Wyote protested the flogging and showed strong disapproval of the whole act. Hizita would acquiesce and stop the whipping short. Before leaving, the Spanish performed their act of possession and left the harbor on June 19, 1775. July 11, 1775, the expedition was near Washington State. They were looking for another good landing site and had been greeted by Native Americans in canoes. I am unsure what tribe they had met and don't even feel comfortable taking a guess. Unfortunately, I just don't have enough information. What happened next is also unclear. According to Morel, a boat was sent ashore and the landing party was onset by over 100 Native people. Everyone aboard the rowboat was killed. Hisita attempted to use the Santiago's cannons to fire upon the shore, but to little effect. Muskets were turned on the canoes around the Spanish ships, and soon the Santiago and Sonora were alone once more. Is that the whole truth? I don't know, but it is all we have to go off of. After the incident, another junta was called. Hisita believed that the Sonora should return to Monterey as it was in bad shape. Quadra was unhappy with this. 
He was frustrated that they had not put in at Monterey when they had the chance and were now a long way north. Quadra wanted to finish the expedition and refused to abandon the mission. Isita relented and the expedition continued. On August 5th, the ships lost contact with each other and would not see one another for the rest of the expedition. The Sonora managed to sail to 57 degrees north near Alaska. They traded with some of the local people and then turned south to return home. The return trip for the Sonora was dismal. Rough winds were making trouble for a ship already in poor condition, and scurvy was taking its toll. Somehow, they made it back to San Blas on October 7, 1775, with the Santiago already there. Perez had died on the Santiago's return voyage, likely due to scurvy. Juan José Perez Hernández, the first European to see the Pacific Northwest, was dead at about 50 years old. I can't help but feel a little bad for such an unceremonious end to the man. We barely know anything about him and his expedition, and he is little remembered by history. Sadly, that is just how it goes sometimes. So, Spain was on the move. They were beginning a new series of explorations up the Pacific coast, Explorations, while impressive, unable to stem the tide of other interested parties, or to prove to anyone that they held substantial claims to the region. Before we go, I'd like to talk to everyone about ways to interact with the podcast more. In the show notes, I have included links to the podcast's new Instagram page, and an email address for the show. I am trying to find ways to increase the profile of the show and reach new audience members. I would love if the Instagram page could one day be used to promote Pacific Northwest businesses and feature photography of the region. We will see how it goes. Next time, we retrace some of the same places from this episode, but we will instead be following the steps of the British sailor, Captain James Cook. His voyage to the Pacific Northwest would be the definitive catalyst for change in the Pacific Northwest region. As always, thank you for listening. And I will see you next time.